Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. This podcast is brought to you by our good friends at the PPAI Expo. Kick the year off at the industry's largest promotional products trade show, January the 14th to 18th, 2018 in Las Vegas. This must-attend event features an exciting preview of thousands of the hottest new products, technology, and trends, the industry's best educational programming presented by thought leaders for professionals at every level, plus CAS, MAS certification credits, and networking for professionals who want to make meaningful connections with industry leaders, top suppliers, and distributors that will drive business growth. It is an absolute must-attend event. Join more than 20,000 industry colleagues, including all of us at Promo Kitchen, at the PPAI Expo in Las Vegas for a full week of insights, learning, and networking. You can register today at ppai.org slash expo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are shaking up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of CommonSkew, and I'm joined by rabble-rouser-in-chief Danny Rosen, co-president of BrandFuel. A few weeks ago, we started a conversation about RFPs and the role they play in our industry. We tackled everything from how to respond effectively to an RFP to creating a win-win scenario between customer and vendor. We had a tremendous response to the episode, so we decided to open up a second chapter. In this episode, we wanted to dig deeper into this topic by speaking with a former procurement manager at one of the world's most recognizable companies, Coca-Cola. Joining us in the guest chair today is Mark Harris. Managing Director of Trademark Consulting International. Mark provides senior-level executive consulting services for consumer product industry clients with an emphasis on strategic marketing procurement, supply chain management, and sourcing of marketing services, including promotion products. Prior to starting Trademark, Mark worked at the Coca-Cola company from 1997 to 2016. In his last role as a senior procurement manager, he executed strategic marketing procurement and productivity initiatives to enhance return on investment and increase compliance of the trademarked promotional products and point-of-sale materials category. Needless to say, we felt that Mark had some experience to share with us at the Promo Kitchen community. Mark has spoken at numerous PPAI events and comes by way of an introduction from Marsha Lond from Tango Partners, a promotional products industry consultant focusing on helping companies navigate RFPs. And with that, Mark, a very warm welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. 
Great. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate the introduction. So, Mark, tell us about Trademark and the types of services you provide to your clients. Yeah, so you touched on at high level from my experience in providing the executive consulting services really focused on strategic marketing procurement. I mean, that encompasses a number of things. So it's the strategic sourcing, contract negotiations, category management, commodity strategies, but specifically related to this industry and this call, you know, trademark licensing, branded merchandise, product development, and then merchandise compliance. I've been in the industry for a, a number of years, as you mentioned, two decades prior to that came up to the retail industry. I always tell people merchandising and merchandise is in my blood and my background and, and have a passion for it. So that is where my services focus. A lot of people in our industry fear RFPs. And I think the procurement departments that design and execute them. Why does procurement have such a bad reputation, do you think? I don't know that all procurement has a bad reputation. I like to think when I was in it that I didn't. I say and not all do, if done the right way. When you have new associates, I think, and that are put into roles that perhaps are not properly trained to balance the pressures that they get from their senior leadership, not only to deliver savings, but they can push to talk about the overall value that they can deliver. These you know, associates can sometimes be short-sighted and become very tactical in their manners and trying to deliver the savings you know, by month, by quarter, by year. And they're not looking right. for the long-term strategic decisions that may be best not only for the company, but also for the supply chain partners, if you will. Right. And this can only come really after maturity of a person in such a role and through robust category planning, doing that in alignment, obviously, with the stakeholders and then having senior leadership on board for those category plans. Right. And I, I mean, I think it's understandable why there's maybe that reputation out there. And I was being provocative with my question. Of course, it's a very, very general statement. And there's no question that there's a number of wonderful procurement officers that I think really take a win-win approach. And you know, then, of course, there's those folks that may give the profession a bad name. And I certainly know that there's those folks in the promotional products industry that give the profession a bad name too. So we're not on a witch hunt here. You know, I'm curious if there are maybe two or three examples that you can point towards that showcase a win-win scenario between procurement and the vendors who sell to those procurement officers? Yeah, when you talk about win-win scenarios, it's, and that's really comes to the manager, procurement manager, working with suppliers and making sure that the suppliers are seeking to understand you know, what the objectives and priorities and deliverables are on both sides uh, yep. to find a common ground and to work through those challenges. You know, and sometimes suppliers can be focused more on the client, which in the case of the space is typically marketing or brand and right. not keeping in mind that procurement is, you know, holds the contract and the, the ultimate value to be delivered under those, uh, those agreements. As far as an example of a win-win scenario, I managed while under Coca-Cola and probably the work that I'm most proud of was when I led the global procurement initiative around finding uh, the supplier that would support our World Cup activation for 2014. We went through a global RFX strategic sourcing process, which follows a lot of rigor, the seven-step sourcing, which some may have heard that term, which can be very grueling on both sides of the court, on the sourcing side as well as the suppliers that having to go through that process and the stages and gates that come with it. But through that process, you know, we delivered or identified a global supplier who developed an exclusive range of merchandise for our system and for the activation. And ultimately, it was the first program of its 
kind, if you will, in proportion to the size scale and then the ultimate results and the volume that were activated. So I feel like the supplier who awarded that was awarded that program won and gained, and we ultimately ended up with a great relationship in the two years that we worked together to, to pull it off. That's a great example. Let's, let's dive a little bit into your work at Coca-Cola. And I would think we could talk about this in terms of large corporations that you work with outside of Coke. But at any given time, Mark, how many promotional products companies were you working with? How many are you juggling? How many are calling on you? And explain maybe also how many companies you're speaking with in terms of entertaining pricing or quotes on any level. Probably from the beginning of my career in the space, it was anywhere between 30 to 50 suppliers, some authorized, some not. But as the years progressed and the category became more developed and strategic with category plans and alignment with the stakeholders, probably less than 10 that were really of any significant volume to the total spend. You may know in those listening on the call, the trend is fewer and bigger. So fewer suppliers that are more strategic that will get more of the business rather than a large array of suppliers. I did not do the day-to-day tactical purchasing, per se, of actually cutting POs, but I know the group that did do that, they would always make sure that they would invite at least you know, at least three, three to five of the suppliers, always authorized, um, always making sure they had a first-tier minority supplier, WBE supplier, including the next, typically incumbents as well, that may have done a program uh, the year past would have that experience would be a part of the RFQ or P in the case. Yeah, it's good to hear. So you're doing a little bit of myth busting here a bit where I think a lot of distributors would think that there were many more than three. It sounds like you came from a place where there were a lot of people in the applicant pool and that these larger organizations have really figured out a way to finesse and make a selection of an organization or a small pool of organizations that are maybe a better comparable fit for those organizations. So that's great. Can I add a little bit to that there, Danny, just to confirm the question? So, you know, there's one point of when you're talking about how many suppliers you would work with, meaning when I would be going out to do a global strategic, trying to identify who the suppliers were going to be that would be authorized. And we would entertain hundreds globally that would be on the list to go through the sourcing process in order to ultimately end up with a preferred roster. At the end of the day, for me, globally, I managed, uh, there were 25 on the global roster. For the U.S. specifically, though it was less than seven. Wow. Now, that's not including the drinkware suppliers and some of the other suppliers where we had direct relationships with, if they were manufacturers, for example, in glassware, because it's for our business. But just speaking promotional products, as I said, less than 10 in the U.S. market. Hmm. That must consume an exorbitant amount of time to funnel into the, the, the final 10 that you would contact which I assume just you know, consumes your time as a professional trying to find the right partners. Is that just a, a rat race for you guys? I wouldn't say that because it's that strategic piece of actually identifying the, the roster is usually every three to five years. So that's not a, an annual thing that we do. We would never, yeah, we would be chasing our tails. Initially, procurement, when we first started, you know, it was all about every one-year, two-year deals. But as the supply chain became more stable, if you will, and the strategic sourcing initiatives became more complex and more collaborative and then you needed stakeholders to be signing off on the solutions. Those initiatives could take six, you know, six, nine months to complete. So by the time they were done, you were 
more than happy to put a three to five year deal in place. Yeah. Well, let's talk about advice and how commercial products companies, distributors who are looking to sell to these large Fortune 500 companies, how can you advise them on how to get in the door? And the more direct and specific you can be, obviously, the better. Sure. You know, as speaking from our time at Coke, but also in some other companies, understand the gate of entry and don't go around it. That's something that in procurement and supply chain, you know, if there is a supply chain or a procurement organization that is managing the authorized supply chain, start there. Understand the current process of how to become an authorized supplier and follow it. Don't try to sell around it or sell top down. There's nothing worse than someone in supply chain being told you know, they need to authorize somebody because somebody higher up told them to, or they find out that they're what I refer to at Coke was a renegade supplier selling to the system without authorization and not coming through the proper channels like those that had competed for the business to do it the right way. That's the following protocol. Anything else you can think of to help get those doors open? I think obviously that's a really, really good one. The renegade action is not a good piece of advice, but anything else that would help promo companies get in? I mean, really building your subject matter expertise and becoming an industry leader. And then, when, you know, for a company of our, uh, you know, Coca-Cola size or any Fortune 500, you know, when going out to an RFI, you know, they're looking at the industry leaderboards and those that have the clients that they have with the experience and the, the professional resume, if you will, of what their capabilities are really brings them to the top of the list. It's not always necessarily the largest supplier in size that made our roster or that I would say would make a roster. It's really about being the right fit, having that subject matter expertise related to what that company is selling, promoting, and, and give them a reason as to why they would need your services, the services of the, the distributor, if you will, versus the supplier. That really is what differentiates suppliers in my mind that we work with. It sounds like there's an opportunity for that David versus Goliath where you don't necessarily have to be the Goliath in the marketplace, but you might be someone who's um, top-notch company with subject matter expertise or a different way to really open the door and, and get noticed, which is promising. We had a few of those that they weren't a very large organization, but they had a significant share of our spend because they really focused on understanding the business and where they could provide that niche and specialize to meet the needs of the business. Yeah, I just want to say that's a fantastic takeaway. So thanks for that. So some Fortune 500 companies we've heard have direct sourcing divisions for promotional products. And if you can share, I think it's probably public domain, but if you're able to share, does Coca-Cola you know, source directly? And do you know of other organizations, whether specifically or not, that do source directly and bypass what we would call our, our traditional supply chain? No, that was going to be one of my questions. If you mean factory direct versus and going around the, the what I refer to as the distributor network here in the states at Coke, the answer would be no. You know, might have had it globally through another agency, but there was always a distributor or what I refer to an agency who specializes in sourcing of merchandise that was in place to do that for us. And based on my experience and the years I was in it, it's always my recommendation as it was for the company, but also for anybody that asked me is that if it's not the company's core business or the competencies to be managed in-house, then leave it to be managed by the professionals within the industry that have the existing infrastructure and the subject matter expertise to deliver that economic advantage. I'm very familiar with even retailers who 
tried to open up shops and sourcing direct and just the pure infrastructure that you have to have in China alone to manage that. It can be very cost prohibitive and be a deep, deep costly learning if it's not your core capability. I believe the promotional products industry of the states between ASI and PPI and membership and the way it works is, is a perfect fit for this category of spin. Not that we don't go direct or didn't go direct, for example, on glassware, not to mention suppliers, but in areas where it made sense, sometimes we would go, we wouldn't say direct, but direct to a screen printer or a embroiderer for t-shirts or hats when the volumes were warranted. But that was years ago. We actually realized that get more economies of scale to still streamline that and work through one of our authorized distributors that could manage the whole program, including the, the hats and the, the t-shirts to go along with the bags and coolers and other accessories that would be part of our campaigns. Mark, how does one cut through the clutter of all the promotional pitches when trying to capture the attention of a large enterprise buyer at a place like Coke? And maybe I'll be a little bit more specific in my question here. So let's say I'm a distributor and I want to go after a big Fortune 500 company. We won't talk about Coke specifically here. We'll just keep it general. And I know that I've got a really creative solution or a really creative idea because of something that I just read in the press, or I've got a unique product or just a unique concept that I think will be perfect for a specific Fortune 500 company. How do I get in with that idea when, if I got on the phone with you, you would likely say, thanks for your call. I get 10 of these a day. We've got a preferred vendor list. Here's a process that you need to go through. And it's almost like that response might be, hey, I recognize that in the promotional products business, we've already got a set group of vendors who can already provide every solution in the promotional products industry. But that might not necessarily be true because my idea may be heads and tails better than any idea you've ever seen before. How does that enterprising promotional products distributor get past the scrutiny of that procurement manager who is simply doing his or her job by saying, hey, if you're not on the list, get in line or you know, good luck. Yeah, so my first answer coming from the licensing trademark group is, is if you've got something unique and creative and if you believe it's an idea, seek to get it patented, whether it be a utility patent or a design patent. If you have a patent yep. on an idea of something that is patentable, if you will, um, that was always sort of my first question because at, at the company at Coke where I was, you know, I, I was not allowed to even entertain something that was of that type of nature without it going through the proper legal channels. I won't tell you what I called the agreement, but, but there was a, a specific yeah. agreement that had to be signed and we, you know, we had a, a 1-800-COKE-SUBMIT. So I believe that is still an active website that I could not even have a conversation or see you know, images of it. Now that's not to say others in the organization would follow that rule, but that's the rule I always followed under. If it's not something that's patented or unique, you know, you know, I, when I was there, would always operate to see the idea, hear the idea, understand whether, you know, it was truly an idea that could only be provided by that um, supplier and or distributor, if that was the case. And I felt like there was a, a potential business need for it, then, I, then it could, would be forwarded to um, someone in brand or marketing to review it. I, I wouldn't be a, a, a gate closer for that. But if it was something that I felt like if they manufacture it, then would ultimately and didn't see it as something we would authorize directly to have a one-off agreement for, we would then refer them to our authorized 
supplier distributors to for them to present to them to then represent them because they have all of the relationships with the marketeers and the brand managers that they would be able to present it on their behalf if they were not considered a competitor. Right. Right. No, and I think that that's a good answer because I know that there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast that may fall into that smaller, more mid-sized promotional distributor that may feel intimidated by all of the perceived red tape of getting in with a big Fortune 500. And it's nice to know that if the idea is truly unique or if the solution is truly unique, then small or mid-sized distributors, you should apply. Just know that your idea better be good and not you know, page three of a supplier catalog that literally anyone else in the industry can get. And Coke likely has negotiated a pretty good deal on that particular product. Yeah. Or seen it, been there, done that, you know, got the t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think an important message to my industry colleagues in the promotional products business is that I think there's a lot of people in the industry who think they've got unique and creative ideas. And really they're not because it's just taken out of a supplier catalog and they haven't done a lot of extra legwork. So it's my challenge. I think Danny would also agree with this. I think our challenge to our industry peers to step it up when it comes to solutions and creative-based selling as well in order to get the attention of the key buyer. Okay. I want to move into another question that I've been wanting to ask you ever since you were talking about not going around the procurement office, because that's something that really gets your hand slapped, so to speak. So can you tell us about the typical relationship between the marketing and procurement department at a typical Fortune 500, or if you can comment at, at Coke? I'm curious about this because in my experience as a distributor, I've been a distributor for almost 20 years now, that what we see time and time again with larger customers that we have serviced over the years, that marketing often calls a company like ours when they're frustrated and they've had it up to here with their procurement colleague. <laughs> so they'll call and say, we can't deal with our procurement department. They're driving us crazy. They are wringing all the creativity out of this or the preferred vendor at XYZ end client is not creative. They're offering horrible ideas and we in the marketing department need true creative solutions. So that's why we're calling you. And what that does is it puts us in this very awkward spot because Yes, we want that order, but we also know that there may be a procurement colleague that's then going to call us and get upset for going around, even though we've got the mandate of the marketing department. So if that's happening to me, I certainly know it's happening to a lot of other people in the promotional industry. Question number one is, talk to me about the relationship and potential tension between creative marketing departments and the more black and white procurement departments. That's question number one. And then what's your advice to a distributor like myself that may be contacted directly by marketing and they're the ones that are doing the end run around procurement, not us. Yeah, so I think again, it depends on the procurement professional that's in the role and what type of relationship they have with the marketeers and the market, various marketing departments. Obviously, Coca-Cola being a very large organization, there was corporate marketing and for corporate brand, and then you had the, the brand in the US and that those team and, I was not in really in a direct day-to-day -day contact with a lot of those folks in the U.S. business, but was in corporate. I'd like to say that in a good organization, it is a collaborative and they are aligned. Not to say that there's not always going to be tension. Marketing and the brand folks, you know, have got one objective and they're focused on that. And usually given a budget, the government has an objective to make sure that we're being frugal, if you will, or 
we're getting the, the right product for the right value. So a little bit of a disconnect sometimes on those two objectives. You know, and unfortunately, I'm aware that suppliers sometimes can get in the middle of that. And my suppliers, when I was at Coke at the time, I always say, it's important. You are also the steward of, you know, what value you're trying to deliver to not only the company, but to the stakeholder and meet both sides of the objectives, if you will. And so the supplier does get caught in the middle. But I, my advice to suppliers is that if you intend to stay in the mix uh, of an authorized supply chain that you can't cut either cord. You have to meet the needs of, of, of both where possible and almost become, a, I don't say a mediator, but a mediator. You know, I, I've been consulting recently for another company and the tension can sometimes be contentious and especially for marketeers that don't understand procurement either. And if they're not quite evolved from just being financial, tactical, all about saving money and doing contracts to actually truly being a business partner in, you know, at the table from the beginning, what is it they're trying to deliver? Who are the best suppliers? If they're going through a sourcing initiative, you know, what are the objectives that they're trying to meet? And then delivering that together. Yeah. I think where a lot of the tension comes in is when there's, you know, fifth quarter, you know, whatever they say, 10th inning, Pitching in quarter, you know, coming in, you know, afterwards, and you know, procurement's trying to clean things up and drive some savings, and the brand's already ready to move on to the next program, or marketing is moving on, and they just want their stuff delivered. Yep, and that's a great response. And to be clear, even though I've been on the other side of the table for my career, and you've of course been on the procurement side, I think having this discussion gives. I think Danny and myself, if, if we represent the conscience of our industry, I think it gives us a little bit of insight into the challenges that you face as a procurement officer. And so I think that's one of the, the values of having this discussion. So I appreciate that. I've got one more question that I want to flip it over to Danny for a few here. So many distributors will complain that despite all of the talk of quote unquote, win-win and collaboration between big client procurement departments and the promotional products vendor, that it really only comes down to price at the end of the day. And if it's a cost plus environment or whatever the case may be, that the ultimate contract in some of these big fortune 500 global deals really only comes down to that number, despite all of the, you know, nice talk of win-win. Is that true, Mark? And then Danny, I also want to get your answer afterwards because you're someone who's been on the other side of the fence and have had your experience with that same issue. So Mark, start with you. Well, based on my experience, no, it's not true. It's not always the case. Creativity and the product ideation is also a factor. As long as it's fairly priced, we did not always pick the lowest cost suppliers for programs and or items. As there are so many other factors, as you know, to consider, when setting up a, not only a strategic supply chain solution, but in you know awarding a supplier, let's say for example in a category like soccer balls, where you have a lot of other things that have to be taken into consideration around merchandise compliance, uh, supplier guiding principles, right, to sourcing from the low cost countries, the quality QC chain of custody. That's all the experience factor that comes into play. So you might have a good situation to where a supplier is a newcomer that 
potentially could do all that and they might come in with the lowest price, but the team will make a decision to go with the most experienced in managing a, a program like that as an example. Or as an example, someone might bring in an item that is unique and creative. It's not patented, but the team will feel like that item, that creative should be awarded to them. There are times in which, you know, if agreements are in place to do so, they could take that idea and then bid it out. I always worked on the uh, ethics of uh, not doing that. That's not always the case in procurement organizations. I always advise that if someone does present an idea and it's going to go into a bid situation, that they be compensated for their idea if they're not awarded the program and able to make their margins on the item itself. Okay, Mark, so great response. Appreciate that. But I've got to challenge you. I really do. And I, I think I'm going to speak on behalf of the majority of distributors that have gone through the RFP processes in the past. I will say that in our 20 years of doing business at Brandview, we have had some extraordinary relationships with companies and the processes and procurement directors, as well as other departments being invested and involved, which is what we love to see, where there's sweet music on both sides. Those types of situations are unfortunately a little bit more rare than the typical scenario. And it's driven not only companies like Brandfield, but I think even bigger companies to pass on RFPs because I think there is a heavy focus on price and less of the consideration for creativity. And I think mainly because a lot of procurement directors and departments are thinking about our industry is highly commoditized and not creative, which is couldn't be anything further from the truth. So you know, at Brand Fuel, we have taken sort of a different approach. We've looked at the Derek Sivers approach, the guy that founded CD Baby and sold it. He got so busy with you know, his success that he had to start taking what he calls the hell yes approach. If it's not a hell yes, then it's a no. And we look at RFPs in the same way. And when I say it's a hell yes for us at Brand Fuel, those are RFPs where we know it's a good fit because maybe they're close to us or we work with them in prior manner. We also might have gotten a referral from someone who's a vetted resource. I would say that, you know, like you said, Mark, earlier, maybe it's a specialty or a niche that we're really, really well versed in. And I think to your point, Mark Graham, you know, the, the question is, do they value creativity? And if we can find an organization that truly values creativity, we feel like they're a good profile for us in terms of a fit. And I also think the last thing, which is really important to mention, is that corporations that are passionate about their brands are going to breathe life into branded merchandising in ways that those that don't have that passion about their brands. And so those are, are really good fits. But I would say this, that most RFPs are fairly boilerplate. They're, they're asking for facts and figures, management bios, client lists. They're talking about what, you know, what are our capabilities. And sometimes we get the opportunity to talk about strategic approach. Sometimes we get to talk about you know case histories and examples of our work that have shown the value to corporations because most of the time it just ends up being a big, awful beauty contest comparison, looking at price, 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 which I think is the major part of most RFPs. And this other stuff gets left wayside. And I think in order to be successful and be a successful partner with organizations, I think they need to look to companies in our space, not as commodity brokers, but start to look at companies that only provide great product, but are innovators and can address the challenges they have, like business growth. How do they 
you know, grow their business? How do they thank and recognize their employees? Things like that, I think, are things that, that matter most. And I'd love to see you, Mark, take advantage of what you have in your space as a leader in the procurement space on the consultant side to put more focus on that. It seems like that's the opportunity. That's the privilege. Yeah, so just to add to that and hearing you uh, do hear you loud and clear, if there is something that is a commodity and it is the RF, what I would call the RFQ stage of a sourcing process where you're getting quotes, or if it's a tactical buy that's a specific program that they are quoting, then price will probably take a higher seat, if you will, in the decision-making process. But from a strategic sourcing initiative, I know the way I ran the programs and how I consult and advise others to do so is that, you know, it's really, you know, there's three stages, if you will. We had an RFI, RFQ, and RFP. And honestly, the the quote, which was the market basket of items, would sometimes represent as, you know, 20, at most 30% of the overall scoring of our supplier selection. Now, there'd be pricing in the RFP section, but that's really where we call the rubber meets the road. It would be case studies, real, you know, show us what you really would do if you really were given this brand program to meet this target customer to support this channel activation and give me 10 items. I'm not going to tell you what I want. Tell me what you would do and how you would deliver. And obviously there's costing and delivery that's a part of those evaluations. But that's really where we would have a lot of suppliers that would score really well on the RFI, have all the capabilities in the world of the big box could knock us out of our socks on the pricing of the RFQ. But when it came time for creativity and showing things that were different and not out of a catalog, they would fail and they would not end up in our support team. And there were those that sometimes weren't the big box, may not have scored as well on the front end, but would deliver immensely on the ideation as it came to the case studies. That's really good. I mean, I've seen in rare instances where an organization will actually say, this is 5% of our sort of grading. This is 20% of weight in terms of the grade and the scoring. That transparency, I think, helps organizations that you know are putting the time and effort into an RFP, and it does consume resources. It is a real resource suck for most organizations to know where to put their efforts and energy. So that's, that's good to hear. Let's get in the weeds just for a second. What's the coolest promotional product that you've ever sourced, whether it was at Coke or somewhere else? I would have to say it would be for the World Cup. It was an item that we called a the Brazil bottle. It was obviously proprietary to the company. It was designed and developed from scratch, which I was proud to be a part of with the partner that we worked on. And it, it ended up, I had a visual I could show you, but it, it was a, a contour-shaped bottle that would play three sounds of music and the pito and music that represent the games. And it was a huge success, not only for our system, but obviously our customers. That's good stuff, too. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about product safety. Have you ever heard of an organization called QCA, the QC Alliance? Yes. So they're a, an overarching organization that is focusing on their nonprofit dedicated to helping suppliers in our supply chain deliver safe compliant products to making sure that their safety in these products are coming into the marketplace. And so there's a tremendous amount of review and a process there, and there's an expense that is connected to that. And a a lot of distributors would say that's a unique selling proposition for them to make sure that they, the clients know that they are selling through QCA approved product chains, which is great. So I would think that Coke and some of the other procurement organizations that you've worked with in the past have had product recalls. 
And I want to just have you talk a little bit about that, maybe put a little fear into our listeners' minds a bit. We know that Coke is sophisticated and you know, recalls probably don't happen a lot, but we know product safety does factor into the decision-making process. So any recall hell you want to talk about and then impart any wisdom on anyone who approaches an RFP in regards to product safety and quality? Yeah, so first let me touch on the QCA organization. I am aware of when it started up and running and, and, and how far the industry has come in paying attention to the quality of the merchandise, if you will, the blank goods coming into the States to make sure that all of the I's and, and T's are, are dotted and crossed. And that anything we were going to be putting our brand on made sure that there was the proper testing from the point of manufacturing and production in place. Um, you know, thankfully, at the Coca-Cola Company, we have a very robust program uh, and a, a supplier selection process with ensuring we've got quality. We're hiring suppliers who have a, someone who, who is specifically has that expertise in-house, and they're managing that for our behalf, whether they're manufacturing it, the item from scratch or they're decorating it domestically, they are managing that on our behalf. So thankfully, in my tenure with Coke, on the promotion side, I was never part of a recall. We did have a process, do have a process for how that would happen, but in the promotional space, I did not. And the reason we didn't, I think, is because of the rigor that we put in on it on the front end from an approval standpoint before it even ends up in a program, making sure that we have all that documentation. There are things that might not get approved and ever end up in the market. My colleague in the merchandise compliance space would always talk about how different the promotional industry was versus retail. In retail, you know, you can recall a product because you know which retailer has it, how many they have, if they sold it, who they sold it to. And it's, it typically sits on a shelf for a much longer period of time in which you could recall it. In the promotional space, you could give away thousands, if not millions of products at one event and one day to consumers that you have no idea where the products end up. So should you ever have a a product recall it can be very damaging to a brand such as Coca-Cola, which is why the rigor is placed so much on the front end to ensure that that never happens and that we avoid those risks. Mark, so noting that you have now left the world of procurement from the procurement officers, Fortune 500 employees' perspective, and now that you're out with a more macro view, and of course you're now consulting, if there was something that you could just fundamentally change about the world of procurement, now that you're free, so to speak, and you can look at it from another perspective. So if you could change one thing about the way procurement is done, something that's like a tried and true tradition, just a way of doing things, what would that be and why? Oh, that's a hard one to answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are lots of things in my old days that I would have changed. Some of it would have been more around internal processes and over-reporting and overthinking, and sometimes over-analyzing and not being empowered or you know enabled to make decisions rather quickly with a smaller set of decision makers, if you will. You know, I would say, as far as the industry and the profession of procurement, you know, would be whether they're just starting off in it or more mature in it. That they need to have an understanding that you know it's, it shouldn't only be about the saving. It should be about 
we refer to it as focused a balanced scorecard, making sure you're looking at all the different elements that a supply chain can deliver upon costs and savings being one component. You've got the innovation piece, you've got the compliance piece, capabilities, you know, diversity. There are a number of things I can think of and, and making sure that as a procurement organization gets stood up, becomes, let's say, what was supply chain sitting in finance, you know, they typically are given hard number of savings to hit and they're focused on that monthly, quarterly and tracking it and, you know, making sure they make their goal of that saving. And then there's the piece about where, if there is savings, where does it go? Do budgets get swept, which causes some of that tension we spoke about in marketing? So if procurement saving money against a particular project or department and that money gets swept to go back to, let's say, the parent company or to fund something else, that relationship becomes one that's hard to, they, they may not want to use you again in the future because they know you're only going to take their money. So that's something that you know, I've been providing some recent consulting on that you've got to have common objectives. And if there's value to be had and money to be saved, that how that money then gets reallocated, there needs to be alignment on that before those initiatives and those in the trenches, yeah. you know, attention, attention is there. Yeah, I mean, I think what I take away from that, if, if I was to start as a procurement officer tomorrow at a large company, I would be very aware that my success depended on pleasing two sets of stakeholders. And, and it would be, A, am I generating uh, meaningful, responsible savings to my department and to my company? Because, of course, that's going to please my manager on that front. But at the same time, I think equally important, I would want to make sure that my client, and I note that when you talked about client, it was in the context of the marketing department or the sales department or the HR department at Coke was your client because you were their procurement service, keeping them happy and making sure that whatever vendor you have selected, you're not just selecting them for a low price, but you're making sure that you're delivering on exactly what your client and the marketing department, sales department, HR department is looking for. And I think that's a really tough balance because the cheapest guy is not necessarily the most creative person. And certainly the most creative person may not be the person that is going to be the cheapest. So how you stand in the middle and balance those two objectives, I think is the fundamental challenge. And I think that like in any profession, you probably have some fantastic procurement officers that nail that balance and that serve both stakeholders really, really well. And I think you probably have a whole slew of them that are terrible at it and cater to just their client, or they just cater to the bottom line, knowing that they get incented based on that savings and they drive their clients crazy. So I think for me that that's been such a fundamental learning here, Mark, in terms of how it is that you've presented your world or your former world, I should say. And I think that really helps us as promotional products vendors better understand your motivations, how to navigate the system maybe a little bit more effectively and maybe reinforcing to curmudgeons like Danny Rosen that it's not just all about a low price. So hopefully we've learned that. There you go, Danny. So Mark, we always like to end off our- There's so much more to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I agree. There's way more to it. And I think it's really important to understand your world because at the end of the day, procurement is not going anywhere. If anything, it is is increasing in terms of their presence in the promotional products industry. And we have to understand how to 
effectively work with people in those positions. So Mark, I wanted to give you the last word. We've got a big and vibrant community of listeners, of people that are wanting to connect and learn more about our guests. So with that, would you like to lead with any parting words as well as some ways that our audience can contact you if they have any questions or comments? Sure. And, and thanks, Mark and Danny, for the opportunity to participate in this podcast. It's been great preparing for it and working with you guys in that. And you know, it's a passion of mine, so it's always great to be able to talk to those in the industry. As you mentioned, I was able to go out to PPI and, and, and present and then speak. You know, it's just, I light up, as, uh, as I've had uh, some people say that. When I talk about it, it's a passion and it's, it's been part of me for, for so long. So, uh, yeah, so for me, you know, if you're interested in speaking more or learning more about what I'm doing, Life After Coke, if you will, you know, I've set up my Trademark Consulting International and that's Trademark with a C. And I can be reached at Mark, M-A-R-C at P-N-C dash I-N-T-L dot com. And send me an email and any questions that, uh, I'm at liberty to answer. I will do the best I can to provide those services. And I'm available for consulting as well. If you have a larger project that you feel I could provide some services to you. Perfect. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. This is a topic that I think has really excited and I think also perplexed a lot of our listeners. And having you on for this second part has been a real pleasure for Danny and myself. So thank you so much on behalf of the entire Promo Kitchen community. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.